Okay, well, we're working our way through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. We're still about at the halfway point of 1 Timothy here, or we will be once we're at the end of this sermon. Um, so here's where, here's where things are. Um, if, if you're new or you haven't been around a whole lot during this series, that's totally fine. Let me give you a quick recap on where we've been, what we're seeing. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a man named Timothy. And Timothy was placed in a church in the city of Ephesus. And so the letter to the Ephesians was written to this church. Um, We actually think that John wrote his letters, John 1, 2, and 3, uh, to this church. Um, There's a lot about Ephesus in the book of Acts as well. There's, There's a lot here. This church is a really important church, uh, although every church is important, right? Every church, but this church gets a lot of, uh, of stuff written to it and about it. Um, and so here's Paul sending Timothy to this church because there was a massive problem. The church had veered away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a bad thing, right? They moved away from the truth of the simple gospel of Jesus that says Christ came into the world to save sinners. And instead, what they were believing were probably that, yes, Jesus saves sinners, but we also have to save ourselves. And so they added all this works righteousness onto it. And uh, that's not how it works. We're saved purely by Jesus, completely by him, and uh, not by any works that we do, right? So that's where this church had moved away from. Paul set Timothy there to steer it back into gospel centrality, both in what they believe and in how they live. So doctrine and practice is what they need correction on. And, and so we've seen so far the, the vital nature of sound doctrine, the whole first chapter. We took like a month to work through the first chapter because there's just so much there to unpack. And that's, that whole chapter just talks about the vital nature of sound doctrine for the church, that believing the right things about the gospel are absolutely central. If you don't get that, you don't have anything of, of significance. And then in chapter two, uh, the last couple of weeks, we saw the need for the church to pray for the Lord to work, to, to have the lives that he wants us to have. We have to depend on him to do that because we can't make this f- happen for ourselves. And then last week we saw the uh, role of men and women in the church, but particularly looked at that through the lens of humility and, and that we are called to be humble people who walk with Jesus as men and women. And that does flesh out differently depending on whether you're a man or a woman and, and that kind of thing. But overall, the whole heart of this is that we're driving our hearts to the Savior who is um, humbly and graciously laid down his life for us. So that's where we've been. Now, today, we're turning to a super important thing. Um, they're all super important, right? I'm going to say that every week. But this is super important too. And this is this is the issue. We, we have to see a healthy, faithful, gospel-centered church has leadership that is reflective of gospel centrality. In other words, if a church is going to be healthy, the leadership needs to be healthy. Where the leaders go, the church goes. That's, that's a general principle that everybody agrees with, right? We see that in our country. We see that uh, in the home. We see that in every sphere of life where the leadership goes, so goes the rest of it. And that's true of the church. 
And the church is the most important institution that there is. Um, the home is obviously meant to flourish within the context of the church. The country should be better. The world should be better because of the church. We all know this, but the church is what Jesus is primarily concerned with. And, and Paul is going to lay out now for us what the qualifications of the leadership of the church should be. So um, he's going to break this down into two sections. We're going to look at both today rather than looking at one and then the next next week. We're going to just lump all this together into one because uh, we're really just talking about the same thing. We're talking about the, the functional leadership of the church. And there are two primary roles within the church. There are overseers or some places the Bible refers to them as elders. We use the term elder. Uh, Paul uses the word overseer here. It doesn't matter what terminology you use at the end of the day. What we're talking about are the primary leaders of the church. You can call them elders. You can call them overseers. You can call them pastors. Uh, you can call them shepherds. You can call them bishops. You can call them whatever you want. But, but the idea is that there are, there's a group of people, a group of men that lead the church primarily as overseers. And then the second group is the deacons. And the deacons don't get a lot of press outside of this uh, and then the book of Acts chapter 6 talks about them as well. But the deacons have a different function. They're still leaders in the church. They just function differently than the elders. And so I think what we should do is talk a little bit about the differences before we get into this. Because Paul, here in this text, doesn't actually give us the job descriptions. He just gives us the qualifications. What kind of character qualities do these people need to possess to be in these positions. He doesn't actually tell us particularly what they do. Now, there are a couple verses that indicate what they do, um, in, uh, particularly in the first half of this with, in regards to elders. We see glimpses of it, but there's not like a explanation of what elders and deacons do here. Um, the reason for that is probably because Timothy didn't need that information. Right? He's writing to a guy. He's writing to a person that he knew well, who had had training, who had been equipped in this regard. And so he didn't need the, the whole background, but maybe we do, right? So we're going to assume we do, just so we're all on the same page. We're all coming out of different places. We're the island of misfit toys here at Springbrook Church, and I love that. And, uh, and so we're all coming from different church backgrounds and lots of different experiences. So so we may not all have the same terminology, or we may not have the same understanding. And so let me just lay out how Springbrook Church views this, and I think we have a lot of biblical reason for it, which we'll see towards the end here. Um, but what are the difference between overseers or elders? I'm going to use that word kind of interchangeably today. And then the deacons. What do they do? Well, elders are meant to be a team of qualified men, qualified men who lead the church in three vital areas. And I'll, I'll talk about those areas, but first let me say, when I say it's a team, I mean it's a team. It's not one guy running the, the show. It, elders in the Bible is always plural, always, whenever it's used. It's never singular. So you're not supposed to just have a guy in charge of everything. Uh, you're supposed to have a team of men that are qualified to lead. Okay? So it's a team. It's a team effort to lead the church. And, and the areas that they focus on are three things. One is doctrine. Doctrine, meaning the role of the elders is to teach the Bible with accuracy, to preach it, to teach sound doctrine, and to refute false teaching. 
Elders need to know their Bibles. Elders need to be competent in the scriptures. Elders need to teach sound doctrine. We're going to see that in this text. Um, And so that's the primary role of the elders is to protect the church from false teaching. We actually see that that's like the whole point of this letter because false teachers had come in and Timothy had to get in there to help the the elders get, get things back on track. That's a big deal. The second thing that elders are responsible for are, is the direction of the church. They, they lead the church. They manage the church. We're going to see this in the list of qualifications as well. They give an account for the church. They're responsible for it. And so, so that's part of the role of elders is to lead the church in its direction. Uh, ultimately, always needing to bring the church back to Jesus. If the church is being led away from Jesus, that's a huge problem. And then the third area that elders oversee is what I would, I would use the term discipleship, which is a very big, broad word. Uh, but basically, what I mean by that is that elders are meant to care for people, to care for their souls, to care for their spiritual well-being, and yes, to help uh, bring the church around others to help meet their needs as well. Um, but they're called to encourage members to live godly lives. They're called to rightly use uh, what God has entrusted to them uh, to, to bring people to faith and, and help people see Christ. And if there's a Christian that's wandering away from Jesus to help bring them back into the fold uh, in, in a gentle way, right? And we're going to see actually a lot of that today. So those are the three main areas that elders deal with, doctrine, direction, and discipleship. That, I just like the three Ds there, so that helps. Um, deacons, on the other hand, have a different function. They're not less important Um, They just have a different role. And our church doesn't have a formal team of deacons, I'll admit that. Uh, We're still developing a lot of things in this church. We're not fully there. Um, But but deacons, in in the best sense, are meant to be um, not leading the church in terms of its doctrine or direction or or discipleship, but are rather a team of men and women uh, it's op- deacons, I believe, are open to women, and we're going to see that, I think, in this text pretty clearly. But their role is to help implement the mission of the church. They're basically the ones that get to help fulfill what the, what the church is called to do, and it's a very important task. And obviously, the bigger the church and the more complicated the church, the more necessary that becomes. We see the prototype for for deacons in the book of Acts chapter 6. And basically why deacons were established was because the, the apostles, who were the prototype for eldership in the church, and they were obviously the foundation of the teaching after Christ, they brought, the, they brought it up to another level um, and, and continued to push that message to people. Um, they found themselves extremely burdened by all the, the tangible needs that the church had. And so they established deacons to help fulfill that mission and, and do that work. But it's important to notice um, that deacons are not just grunt workers. They're mobilizers. They are, they are servants in the advancement of gospel ministry. And so uh, that's important. They're not, they're not JV. They're not uh, a B squad. Uh, they have a real distinct purpose from the, from the overseers but their purpose is important. Okay, so we're going to actually see that there's a, there's a couple of differences in the qualifications for elders and deacons, but um, mostly there's a lot of overlap. Mostly it's just all kind of the same. 
So we're going to take these two together. Um, all right, so that's, that's kind of the, on the front end, just so we're clear on what we're talking about. But let's get into the qualifications. Um, verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So right out of the gate, what Paul is saying is, is it's a good thing to want to be an elder. Uh, it's a good thing. It's, it's a noble thing. Um, doesn't mean that everybody has to serve as an elder or that there needs to be this rotating door of, of everybody getting their turn. But what it means is, is that people who want to serve in this regard are, are pursuing a good thing, a noble task. And, and so that's where it starts. Being an elder in the church, an overseer in the church, is a noble thing to, to want. Um, verse 2 says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Okay, so I think this is, this is the key qualification. It's not just one of many qualifications. It is the qualification. And Paul's going to then elaborate on what it means to be above reproach. The rest of this section is him articulating what that looks like practically. But this is the qualification of an elder. It is to be above reproach. So what does that mean? Some translations may use the phrase blameless. I don't really like that. I prefer above reproach. Uh, but, it, but it does kind of get to the idea. But basically, there's nothing glaringly wrong in your life that people can point to and go, that's a problem. That, that is an, an issue in your life, really obviously, right in front of us. That's what it means to be above reproach. It means that people can't point to you as an elder and go, well, I saw you doing this yesterday. Right? That, that's kind of the idea. That, that, there's, that, that there's a sense of commitment to Jesus and repentance of sin because every elder is a sinner. Every pastor is a sinner. Uh, and we all need to be walking in repentance. But if there is an ongoing, unrepentant issue in a man's life, that is just undealt with, it's glaring, it's a huge problem, that is disqualifying. And so the main issue of being an overseer is to be above reproach, to be able to stand before the Lord and before others and say, I'm, I'm walking with Jesus to the best of, of my ability with all the awareness that I have of my heart. I'm repenting of sin. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing near to Christ. I'm being a faithful follower of Jesus, again, to the best of my ability. Above reproach means that you're walking as a solid Christian. And so he's going to then articulate what that means. And he's going to give us this long list. And we could get lost in the weeds and like talk about all of this stuff like endlessly, but we're going to do the flyover, okay? He says the, the first kind of definition of being above reproach is you're the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. So the, the issue here, this has been all of these qualifications, or at least the, some of them, have been just massively debated over all the years. What does this mean? Well, I think we read way more into it than we need to. What it means is that you're the husband of one wife. Um, it means that you have one wife. You're not a polygamist. That was a problem in Paul's world. It's not a problem 
in your world because you don't live in Utah or Idaho. But um, it's a... <laughs> Why did I say that? Um, it's not a huge problem in, in our world. We don't think of it in those terms, but that's what he's talking about. In fact, I've got a buddy who's, in, who's a, a pastor, church planter in, um, in the Congo. And he was telling me, he was here a few years ago visiting, and he was telling me that this is the hardest thing about planting churches in the Congo, in the rural areas in particular, because you can get guys saved, but then they've got three or four wives. And so it's like, well, how, how, how do we deal with this? You know, it's, they're not qualified to be elders with, with this. And so that's a problem. I think also it gets to getting back to the, to the original language um, the Greek here is an interesting phrase. It's just simply one woman man. That's the literal, like if you were just to literally translate it out from Greek into English, that's how it would be translated. One woman man. Faithful to his spouse. Faithful to his spouse. So this obviously means that the elders can't be running around committing adultery. They can't be addicted to pornography. They can't be just being crazy, carousing kind of men because that's not above reproach. We, we have to be faithful to our wives and we, we have to have just one of them, right? We can't, and this is, we, we don't think that that's a problem because it's not really anymore in our day, but that was a huge problem in Paul's world with multiple wives and mistresses and all the things. Like that was just Greek and Roman culture. That's, that's a glaring problem, right? If a guy's not committed to his wife. All right, let's keep going because, again, we can get lost in the weeds. We've got to keep moving on, though. Sober-minded, clear-headed. Guy's got to be able to, to be clear-headed, not, not driven by substances. Self-controlled. This one is clear, right? Able to control himself. He's not, he's not out of control. Respectable. Lives a life that people can look to and go, okay, there's a guy who loves Jesus hospitable. So he's somebody who welcomes others into his life and into his home and is willing to be in life with others. Able to teach. Able to teach is, the, is really one of only two of the qualifications here that has to do with skill set. Everything else is character qualities. This is a skill set that elders have to possess. It doesn't, doesn't mean that every elder has to be preaching Um, regularly. That's not what it says. It says able to teach. And there are lots and lots of ways that teaching happens. It happens in small groups. It happens in counseling sessions. It happens in one-on-one conversations with members of the church. Teaching happens all the time, and elders need to be able to handle the word and teach it. And yes, there are elders that have the responsibility, and I actually, we have all of our elders at different times in the year preach. Um, because we want to have them up here and get them in front of you, and they want to do that too, uh, which is good. So I think they're planning on preaching through December uh, this year in just a couple months, having those guys take turns and doing their thing. That's a good thing. Uh, But the ability to teach doesn't mean you have to be Charles Spurgeon or some crazy rock star communicator, but it means you can open your word, the Bible rather, and teach it to somebody and explain what it means. That's that's really the primary difference between the role of elder and deacon is the ability to teach. Otherwise, we're going to see a ton of overlap in these things. Okay, verse 3, not a drunkard, so not addicted to uh, substances. 
Doesn't mean that wasn't an issue in your past. It means it's not an issue in your present. That, that's the key. Like all of us are sinners and all of us have had problems with probably all of these things at different times in our lives. But uh, is that where we are right now? That's always the question. Not a drunkard, not currently dealing with that issue. Look at this. It says, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. So he kind of gives this string of three things, not violent, but gentle. So gentle is the opposite of being violent. And then not quarrelsome, so not wanting to pick a fight with people all the time. I think this is a really overlooked qualification of an elder. Because I think that most of us are drawn just by the nature of our culture to the loudest, brashest, rudest, most obnoxious person in the room. Because it seems like, well, if, they've got, if they talk the loudest, they must have the most to say and they must be the best at what they think. That's not a qualification of an elder. Qualification of an elder is a person who is able to be controlled, not blowing up in anger, able to handle people in a spirit of gentleness, able to, to not start a fight, but kind of help to bring about peace in these things. That's a huge thing that we just don't, we don't look at very often as a qualification for an elder. And I think it's, it's something that's really vital, as all this is. Not a lover of money. So somebody who's an elder shouldn't be motivated by greed, shouldn't be motivated by like, having more and more. They should be content with what God has given them. There's nothing inherently wrong with making money, earning money uh, in an honest way, but, but there is a problem when the money is what you trust in, if that's where your hope is placed in. And so an, an elder can't be motivated by the love of money. Verse 4 uh, and 5 get to the second kind of qualification that has to do with the job, specifically doing the job. Here's what it says. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So, so three things there, uh, or two things there. The job of an elder is to care for God's church and to manage God's church, right? Which is what I tried to lay out. Uh, you have the teaching of God of God's people. That's why you have to have the ability to teach to be an elder. You have to be able to manage your household because if you can't manage your household, how can you manage the church? So there's direction that the church has to, has to be led by the elders. And then there's a mention here of the care for God's church, which is what I would call discipleship, but just caring for people. And basically the qualification here is this, is the guy able to, to handle his household? Do his children listen to him? Are, are, is there obedience? Is there, is, are his children submissive and respectful to him? Because if he can't handle his own little home, how is he going to manage the broader church of God? Right? So it's, it makes sense, right? There needs to be some like evidence that a guy can do this thing. And, and you see that in how he handles his family. So we see that as, as a, both kind of a qualification and also de- definition of the role of elder. Verse 6 says he must, be a re- he must not be rather a recent convert 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So a leader in the church can't be a brand new Christian because if he's a brand new Christian and he's elevated to this position of leadership, then that's room for, the, for, for pride to come into his heart and, and to bring a lot of disgrace to himself and to the church. And then verse 7, look at this one. This is interesting. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, meaning non-Christians. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. So an elder also has to be seen in a positive way by his neighbors, his co-workers, his non-believing friends, his just people outside the church. That's interesting. Because I think a lot of times we can, you can kind of throw the rug over someone's eyes in the context of the church because you see a guy once a week and you go, oh, he's a stand-up guy. But then you ask his neighbors, how, how is he as a neighbor? And that guy may have a very different picture for, for who this guy is. So that's interesting. So well thought of by outsiders is the last qualification. So again, this is just a long laundry list of things that, that need to be present in a, a pastor's life. Again, this, there's areas where this will need growth, but the idea is to be above reproach. There's nothing that's glaringly problematic in this person's life right now. That's, that's the heart of it, to be above reproach. All right, let's get into deacons, and then I want to take us over to First Peter after this and kind of tie this up. Uh, so let's get through this list of deacons. It says deacons likewise. So in a similar way, okay, there's not a whole lot of differences here because what we're talking about is simply mature Jesus-following people. So deacons, likewise, must be dignified. That kind of gets to the idea of being above reproach, not double-tongued. So he's not saying one thing over here and another thing over here. He's, he's got integrity in how he speaks. Not addicted to much wine. So there's the idea of not being a drunkard. That's a, kind of a an overlap. Not greedy for dishonest gain. So there's not a lover of money. Then it says, verse 9, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So they must be Christians. Okay, that's not, that should be obvious, but Paul has to say it. Um, verse 10, let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Or again, you could translate that above reproach. So, so deacons have to go through a season of, okay, uh, is this genuine? Is this real? Verse 11 is where the, the interesting thing comes in because the ESV, which I'm reading from here, uh, a lot of other translations also translate this, their wives likewise. Now, here's the thing. This is a, this is a genuine decision on behalf of the translators to translate this word, their wives, because the word is just th- the women, so there's two ways to understand this. Either there's a higher standard for deacons, so their wives have to meet some qualifications that elders' wives don't. The only qualification for an elder's wife is there's one of them, okay? There's nothing else in here that says, oh, the elders' wives also have to be X, Y, Z. So it doesn't make any sense to me why they translated this their wives, except for the fact that they didn't want to stick their necks out and say the women. 
But the NIV is bold. If you have an NIV, yay, highlight this, because it does say the women. Because this is speaking about the, the deacons or the deaconesses uh, who are also vital servants in the church. Women can serve as deacons. That's my view. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. It makes no sense for Paul to put a standard on the wives of the deacons that he doesn't put on the elders' wives. Makes no sense. So this should be translated, the women deacons likewise, and then he gives them some uh, qualifications, which are the same as the men's. Must be dignified. Back in verse 8, he says deacons have to be dignified. Must not be slanderers, so they're not double-tongued. Same qualifications. Sober-minded, not addicted to wine. Okay, Faithful in all things. So, Male deacons, female deacons, same exact qualifications, but Paul's laying them all out individually. And then it says this, uh, let the deacons each be a husband of one wife. So again, no polygamous deacons allowed in the church. Uh, Managing their children and their own households well, right? They've, They've got a good family situation going on. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith. That is in Christ Jesus. So, so the deacon role is not a B squad. It is a valued ministry in the church. It's, it's vital. And so he, Paul affirms that. He says that those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in Jesus. So this is a, this is a valued thing. And so the Bible is affirming here very clearly. Let's get to the bottom line on this and then we'll move into another area. What what. Paul is speaking here, bottom line, is that the leaders of the church, the elders and the deacons of the church, must be mature, ongoing in growth, and repentant Christians. That's, that's bottom line what he's getting at. Because here's the thing, everything in this list should be true of every Christian, regardless of whether they're in that position or not. To say that, that uh, a, non, uh, you know, a non-elder can be a drunkard is not biblical, right? Because the Bible says don't be drunk with wine. That's true for all Christians. Uh, to say that a Christian can't be, uh, can be unself-controlled or out of control is not true because that's a fruit of the Spirit to be self-controlled. Right? All of these things, except for, you know, not every Christian's called to be able to teach. So, so there you go. You get a pass on that one. But every single Christian should be these things. So we're not looking at some super level of Christian here. We're looking at a mature, growing, repentant Christian to serve as the leaders of the church. That's, what, that's Paul's bottom line. And I think that the problem is, is that in Ephesus, something happened. There was a disconnect and they put people into this position who should not have been in that position and it wreaked havoc on the church and that's why Paul has to go back to the, the bottom here and go, all right, let's rebuild this thing. Let's build this back up because this church has been devastated because of the elders. The elders destroyed this church. It wasn't the average Christian who attended this church in Ephesus. It was the elders that destroyed this church because where the leaders go, the church goes. And so Paul puts his guy back in there Paul's been gone for several years, probably by this point, and, and things have just gone crazy because the elders let things go crazy. And so Paul's going, here we go. Let's get back to the bottom line. The bottom line is that you need 
repentant, growing, mature believers to lead the church. Okay. So, at the end of the day, though, let's, um, let's look at where this takes us. I think we've got to go outside of this text a little bit. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5, if you've got a Bible. You can turn there. I think we got the words up on the screen as well. This is from the Apostle Peter. So it's a different author to a different church. Um, but I think what he's going to say in these first four verses of chapter 5 um, really gives some clarity to what we're talking about. He says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So, so Peter starts with this, here's my exhortation or my encouragement or my, my call to the elders in the church. Um, as a fellow elder, he calls on the elders to do something, and that's in verse 2. This is where we actually have the best job description of an elder, of a leader of the church. This is the job description, not so much the qualifications. Verse 2, it says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The role of an elder, and I think that the role of a deacon flows out of this because the deacons are meant to help deploy this, but the elders are primarily responsible for shepherding the flock of God. Not their flock, God's flock. You belong to Jesus. You don't belong to Springbrook Church, right? I shouldn't even have to say that. I'm going to say that. You, this is not something weird. Like, you belong to Jesus. And so when you're here, when you join with us and you become a part of this church, the elder's job is to help lead you, shepherd you to Jesus. That's the job. We do that by preaching the word. We do that by encouraging you in your faith. We do that by helping counsel you as you encounter issues in your life. We do this in numerous, numerous ways. But the role of, a shep- of, a, of an elder is to shepherd the flock of God that's among us. That phrase, among you, is important too. Because this means that the, the elders of a church need to be local. You don't, you don't need some guy in a different country telling you how to live. You, you need men in your congregation, among you, who are, who are leading this thing in the way Christ would have us lead. And this is the way Christ has us lead. Look at verse 2 again. He says, exercising oversight. So giving kind of big picture to the church, oversight to what's happening. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So, so the role of an elder is to exercise oversight over the church, being, mean, kind of being that gatekeeper for the church, to guard the doctrine, to protect the people from false teaching, all those things. And so exercising oversight, but not under compulsion. Elders should not serve because their arms are being twisted to do it. They should be willing to do it as God would have for us. Then it says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So we're not doing this to gain for ourselves. We're not doing this to, to take from everybody else. We're here to be eager to, to pour out our lives for you. Then look at verse 3. This is, this is crucial. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. 
I believe that virtually every church that implodes implodes because the leaders are domineering leaders and they're self-centered and they're not sacrificial. We are expressly told to lead the church in a non-domineering way, which means just as elders are not supposed to serve because their arms are twisted into it, the elders are not supposed to twist your arms either. And how disturbing and discouraging it is to go into churches and see just heavy-handed leadership. It's heartbreaking. I, I try to push against it as much as I can whenever I have the opportunity to speak to other pastors and elders. And, and I bring, and you can ask any of the guys who serve with, with us here as elders, like, I bring them to this text like all the time because this is what we have to keep in front of us. We're not here to just domineer and get our way, but what are we to do? We are to be examples to the flock. Examples. Now, here's verse 4, and this is where I want to take us. This is the ultimate point of all of this. Verse 4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears. Who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. That's right, Jesus. Jesus is the point. The elders of the church have to lead to Jesus. If, if we're not leading you to Jesus, get out, run away. Like seriously. I mean, this is a, if you're in any church that doesn't lead you to Jesus, you're in the wrong place. Go, go find a church that takes you to Jesus because it is about the chief shepherd of the sheep. No, no single pastor, no elder team is ultimately responsible for your souls. Jesus is that. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Last time I checked, I wasn't crucified for you. Neither was anybody else in this church, but Jesus was crucified for you. He laid down his life for you because that's what a good shepherd does. The good shepherd. Not just a good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And your human leaders, your elders, your deacons, ought to be taking a page out of Jesus' book and leading in that way, right? How, how Jesus is should be how we are, but we're flawed, fallen, sinful people just like everyone else. And so we'll fail that. We'll fail in that. But if we're continuing to point you to Jesus, we're, we're heading in the right direction because it's when the chief shepherd appears that's when we receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus is the one who rewards. Jesus is the one who comes back for us and he will one day do this. And so in the meantime, the role of the elders and the role of the deacons in deploying that, that vision from the elders is to help bring people to Jesus, the chief shepherd of the sheep. If he's not the focus of our time, if he's not the reason we're here, we're wasting a lot of precious time on Sunday morning. You could be doing a lot of other things if this is not about Jesus. And so I, I was reminded just in, um, as I was looking at this passage, I, I was reminded of a, a benediction that we read here 
We read it last week. I didn't really think ahead. I could have read it for this week. Maybe I will because I just turned the page to it, so I'll probably leave it there. Um, But this benediction from the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Here's what it says. You guys have heard me read this 100 times if you've been around long enough. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the point. The end of the book of Hebrews, the author brings us back to the chief shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd. The, the one who actually equips you with everything good. I can't equip you with everything good. I can point you to what is good from the scriptures, but I can't equip you with everything good. Only Jesus can do that. And Jesus is the one who works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Think about that phrase, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. What that means practically is that what you do that honors Jesus comes from Jesus working in you. It doesn't happen because you've somehow pulled yourself together. It doesn't happen because you've fixed yourself. It happens because we can please the Lord Jesus as he works in us to bring out what is pleasing to him. Our hearts have to be drawn back to Jesus every day. Every Sunday in particular, as we gather as a church, this is what we're called to do. This is what we're what we should be focusing on is that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And yes, he has called upon uh, leaders, men as elders, men and women as deacons who are qualified, who are, who are following him, who are loving him, who are walking with him to help serve practically, tangibly on the ground. But if your focus or my focus becomes all about the shepherds that are in the church and not in the chief shepherd who is over the church, We've lost our way, and we've got to get ourselves back. Let's see the chief shepherd of the sheep. Let's worship him. Let's make this all about what he has done and how he has saved us and how he, by the blood of his eternal covenant, brought us in to salvation. All right, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the chief shepherd of the sheep, that he is our great shepherd, that, that he is the good shepherd. All the things that your, that your word points us to about Jesus, that he leads our souls back to you, Father. I pray uh, that we would focus in our hearts on him today. And Lord, as I prayed at the start of this service, I pray again, get me out of the way. Get us as a team of people up here out of the way. Help us, Father, to just focus on who Christ is, what he's done. And may your spirit seal in our hearts what is good in this. I pray that you would work in our, in our church, continuing to grow it and develop it and mature it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.